1: It was a mild, Monrovian evening in early November, 1938, just a few days after little Ellen Johnson was born. The coconut trees swayed on the front lawn as the coastal breeze whipped softly through the open window. The happy young parents, Jamale and Martha, sat quietly, rocking their baby's cradle.
0: Then, a visitor arrived.
1: Jamale and Martha knew what to expect another neighbor or acquaintance come to congratulate them on the new child.
0: Jamale ushered in the elderly man on their doorstep, whose face was wrinkled from smiles. He asked to see the new child, Martha obliged, showing him Ellen's crib.
1: But the guest's reaction wasn't the normal coup of delight followed by praise and congratulations.
0: Instead... He turned to Martha with a strange look on his face. His eyes were wide and dark, and his voice came out harsh and cold. This child shall be great. This child is going to lead.
1: But at what cost, he didn't know.
0: The little baby in her crib burst into a great, gusty cry.
1: Whatever was coming... She could handle it. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
0: And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast Original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram. At Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
1: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little known facts. Today we're discussing Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the 24th president of Liberia first-elected female head of state in Africa and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize.
0: Her difficult early adulthood looked like an unlikely starting point for a world leader, but Ellen's commitment to bringing unity and true, transparent democracy to her divided homeland transcended the circumstances of those years. Through intelligence, drive, and relentless effort, Ellen managed to live an inspiring, successful life that ultimately helped her become the president of Liberia.
1: But she was not universally loved. After 12 years in Liberia's highest political office, it's no surprise her legacy grew complicated.
0: And the woman behind that legacy is even more complex.
1: Let's get back to the story of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who, before being president, was a young girl in Liberia's capital, Monrovia.
0: The Monrovia of Ellen's childhood, in her own words, was zinc houses and hilly dirt streets, papaya trees and cassava plants, flowering gardens and wooden outhouses, simple, friendly, close-knit home. By 1950, when she was roughly 11 years old, the population was just 35,000.
1: It was simple, but lovely and warm. And it was all these things in part because Ellen was born into a family that was firmly rooted in the power system of the capital.
0: Liberia's ruling class, centered in Monrovia, was made up of freed slaves who had come to settle the land starting in 1820.
1: This settler class, though fleeing persecution and inequality in America, ironically created their own class-based society when they landed on Africa's west coast. They established social, economic, and political dominance over the indigenous African tribes in what they soon started calling Liberia. Their government, based on class and privilege, was rampant with corruption and nepotism. This was not a society of equal opportunity.
0: Ellen's parents both had roots in native tribes. Her father, Jamale, was the son of a Gola chief. Ellen's grandfather had been a German trader, which gave Ellen and her mother a pale complexion.
1: Due to the couple's indigenous background, They should not have been able to rise through the impenetrable ranks of the Americo-Liberians, as Liberia's settler elite called themselves.
0: But they did. Jamalé and Martha both made their way into the homes and schools of Monrovia's elite through the ward system. This was a cultural practice in which wealthier families would take in the children of poorer or more rural families and educate them in exchange for an extra set of hands around the house.
1: Though both Martha and Jamale kept in touch with their native villages, the ward system made them culturally Americo-Liberian. They were raised Christian and given a Western-style education.
0: By the time Ellen was born on October 29, 1938, Jamale was a successful lawyer with ambitions to enter the Liberian legislature.
1: Ellen and her three siblings grew up with status and material comfort. They went to the best schools in the capital and spent their Sundays learning proper table manners with their mother's Americo-Liberian guardian, whom they called Grandma Cecilia.
0: After William V.S. Tubman was elected to the presidency in 1943 on a platform of increased Native representation and rights, the Johnson family fortunes increased. Ellen's father became the first native-born man elected to the legislature.
1: Little Ellen thrived in this comfortable, cozy world. She listened in as her father's government colleagues hobnobbed in their living room. She even got to meet President Tubman when he came around for the occasional visit. She was surrounded by a world of promise, privilege, and power. And she took it all in, as little children do, like a sponge.
0: But Ellen also learned early on that Monrovia and its comforts weren't the only way of life in Liberia. Her parents were determined that she not forget their indigenous roots.
1: Every summer, Ellen and her siblings were shipped off to their father's ancestral village with the Gola-speaking tribespeople. There they learned to swim and met people who practiced both indigenous rites and the Muslim faith.
0: Ellen learned, in short, about the complex history and identity of Liberia from a native perspective, just as she was learning about those things at school and in Monrovia from an Americo-Liberian perspective.
1: She knew that what she saw in Monrovia was Liberia, but although they looked different, what she saw in the Gola village was Liberia, too.
0: Something else taught her about the nation's complexities in her early years. Bullying Based on Her Skin Tone.
1: In her memoir, Ellen recounts childhood taunts about the light skin color she'd inherited from her mother. Her schoolmates called her Red Pumpkin, with cruel jibes that she was too light to be a real African.
0: Well, these taunts were like stabs to the heart. But Ellen also knew that she was as African as could be.
1: Staring in her mirror, she murmured to herself... This. This is what Liberia looks like. Just like Monrovia is Liberia. Just like Father's Village is Liberia. This was the face of a smart, worthy African girl.
0: She knew she'd find a way to prove it.
1: That ambition was the very seed of Ellen's selfhood, but when she was in her teens in the late 1950s, it was buried beneath the tragedy that hit her family.
0: Her father had a massive stroke, leaving his entire right side paralyzed.
1: No longer able to work, he lost his position in the government. The family income plummeted, and political power brokers stopped coming over for dinner.
0: For Ellen, too, there were massive consequences. The Americo-Liberian elites she'd grown up with attended colleges abroad. But Ellen knew she had little hope of getting one of the government scholarships she'd been assured when her father was a legislator. Those scholarships were reserved for the children of the upper crust.
1: And her family was no longer part of the ruling class.
0: It was her senior year of high school. She was 17. And she wasn't sure how to move forward.
1: Her predicament found its answer in the form of James Doc Sirleaf, a Tuskegee Institute educated man seven years her senior. He too was mixed heritage, from the native Mundinga tribe and the Americo Liberian elite. Like Ellen, his background reflected Liberia's complicated socio political landscape.
0: He was handsome, charming, and ambitious. He seemed like the perfect man. Soon after Ellen's graduation from high school in 1956, the couple married.
1: But it wasn't just a marriage of convenience. Ellen and Doc were madly in love, and Ellen wrote off his possessiveness as part of that intense love at first.
0: The union proved stifling almost immediately. Ellen was caring for what quickly turned into a family of six, with four little boys to feed. Then, Doc became so possessive that Ellen was afraid to even smile at male friends in the street for fear of Doc's verbal abuse.
1: Ellen felt all those bright, still undefined ambitions of her childhood drifting farther and farther out of reach. She was depressed. And as her friends started to make their way back to Liberia with degrees and the prospect of high-powered careers, her sense of isolation deepened. That, she had always thought, would be her life, education, a career, and contribution to her country.
0: After five years of a suffocating marriage, Ellen knew something needed to change. She just needed an opportunity. Then, in 1961, She got one.
1: Doc was awarded a scholarship to pursue his master's in the United States at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If Ellen could pull the right strings, she might be able to get a scholarship to accompany him and further her own education. Finally, life could be on her own terms.
0: Coming up, Ellen's ambitions get their delayed start. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was 23 years old with a controlling husband, four sons, and no outlet for her burning ambitions. But when her husband was awarded a scholarship to study in the U.S., she knew she had an opportunity to better her life.
0: She would do whatever it took to get her own scholarship to accompany him and earn a college degree.
1: Ellen had to take a special entrance exam, but that wasn't enough by itself she and her mother pleaded with everyone of influence they knew. After much persistence and exhausting all of their connections, she prevailed. Ellen was awarded a scholarship to pursue an associate's degree at Madison School of Business.
0: Life in Madison, Wisconsin fulfilled Ellen's expectations in many ways. She was a dedicated student and excelled in her courses. But over the course of the year the couple spent together in Wisconsin, Doc's abuse got worse and escalated from verbal to physical.
1: In Ellen's own words, he always did enough to hurt, but not enough to maim or kill, just enough to keep me in a state of fear.
0: Ellen was relieved when Doc's one-year degree ended and she was left in Madison for a peaceful second year alone. During that year, she experienced a freedom and peace of mind that assured her her marriage must end, especially as her studies came to a close and she returned to Liberia and her family. She felt trapped.
1: Work provided some escape from the fear and anxiety at home. With her new American degree in hand and hungry determination, she got a job in the Treasury Department.
0: Even more thrilling, she found she actually loved the work. In the field of economics, she started to see a clear channel for her ambitions, a channel through which she could, like her father before her, contribute something of real value to Liberia. A sense of accomplishment washed over her.
1: But the more Ellen thrived in her professional life, the more her husband lashed out at her. Doc's abuse became more frequent and less predictable.
0: One evening, Ellen came home and found herself staring down the barrel of a gun. Doc was holding her at
1: gunpoint. But her oldest son, eight-year-old James, launched into action. He threw himself at his father, can of bug spray raised high, and aimed for Doc's eyes.
0: Ellen's heart stopped, unsure of what Doc would do.
1: But the little boy was too small to reach his father's face, and Doc simply looked at his son, confused.
0: He put the gun down, shot Ellen a death glare, and drunkenly stumbled out of the room.
1: Ellen grabbed James, held him close to her chest, and bit down sobs. In Liberia, Fathers always received custody of a child during a divorce. But Ellen knew, at that moment, it was time, even if that meant she was torn away from her boys.
0: In 1965, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, still just 27 years old, left her husband. Bowing to his demands and the laws of Liberia, she left her children in his care.
1: While the ensuing divorce was far from neat and clean, she was able to maintain relationships with her children and her relationship with Doc slowly faded from her life and she turned away from the past with relief.
0: Finally, she could move forward and concentrate on her career.
1: She threw herself into her work. But in doing so, she saw within the Treasury Department and President Tubman's government something that began to trouble her. Tubman had been in office since 1944, which meant he had been ruling for 21 years. Ellen witnessed firsthand rampant corruption throughout his administration.
0: As the 60s wore on, the economy started to turn downward. She became increasingly convinced that the corruption around her was the problem. This wasn't the Liberia she'd grown to love as a little girl. The country that she was determined to be accepted as a part of.
1: That country was better, more fair, and its economy would be better as a result.
0: Ellen was quickly realizing that the Liberia of her childhood was smoke and mirrors. Corruption seemed to be baked into the foundations of the government.
1: Ellen wanted to change that. Few of her colleagues would dare discuss corruption, even if they shared her concerns. President Tubman had been known to drum up treason charges to keep his dissenters silent.
0: Ellen wasn't sure what her path to creating that change would be, so she kept quiet and stayed focused on her work for the time being.
1: She started to impress her colleagues at the Treasury Department, and she caught the attention of one in particular, Harvard economist Gustav Papanek, who was advising the Liberian government as part of the Harvard Institute for International Development.
0: While Ellen's role at the Treasury Department was still junior, Papanek saw her potential. She was hardworking, honest, and smart, a rare combination in the Liberian government. When he convinced President Tubman to host a 1969 conference on Liberia's economic future,
1: Papanek
0: made sure that Ellen was invited to speak.
1: When she took the stage that day, her life changed forever.
0: Her speech focused on the reasons behind the current economic downturn. She first discussed the conventional explanations— the global collapse of prices for iron ore and other important Liberian exports, the government tax loopholes for large international corporations.
1: But then she launched into her final, dangerous point. Liberia would not thrive as long as the government remained a kleptocracy, with power and wealth kept in the hands of a privileged few. The corruption had to stop.
0: The crowd sat in shock. Not so much at Ellen's analysis, but at the fact that she would dare to say it publicly.
1: Ellen had put her future on the line, but she believed in her message and its urgency. As she watched the economy crumble around her, she knew that Liberia's choices were to change or dissolve into chaos and disaster.
0: Papanek watched Ellen descend from the stage. He was impressed, but worried, he pulled her aside. Her speech was excellent, he said, but after a show like that, she should get out of Liberia.
1: Ellen protested, emphasizing that Liberia rarely arrested women, but Puponek shook his head. She was being foolish. As a way to protect her from Tubman's wrath, he resolved to try and get her a fellowship at Harvard University.
0: Well, the process wasn't simple, but in the summer of 1969, Ellen left Liberia for the United States. First to earn her bachelor's degree from the Economics Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Then in the fall of 1970, she enrolled in Harvard University. There, she pursued a one-year master's in public administration.
1: Ellen excelled at both institutions. At Harvard, in particular, she educated herself on the socio-political makeup of Liberia. She learned about the history behind the divided indigenous peoples and Americo-Liberians and how rampant corruption and lack of opportunity for indigenous peoples allowed Americo-Liberians to hoard power for themselves through shady backroom deals.
0: She arrived at Harvard with her keen understanding of Liberia's multiplicity and the country's issues with corruption. She left the university with decisive, comprehensive opinions about what needed to change in Liberia, more equality for indigenous peoples, and a more transparent government to weed out corruption.
1: Her steamship trip home from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Liberia in July 1971 was full of excitement and apprehension. Ellen, now 32 years old, wasn't sure what kind of reception she'd get back in Monrovia after the speech with which she'd left it two years ago. She wasn't sure what kind of work she'd be able to do there now.
0: But then, mid-dinner on July 23rd, news reached the ship.
1: President Tubman, after 27 years in power, had died at age 75.
0: Liberia was on the brink of something, and Ellen was certain that she was about to be a
1: part of that transformation. With Tubman dead, a Harvard degree in hand, and her controversial anti-corruption speech several years in the past, it wasn't difficult for Ellen to get a new, senior position at the Treasury Department, now called the Ministry of Finance.
0: The new president, 58-year-old William Tolbert, seemed committed to an agenda for real change, at least in the beginning.
1: But old habits die hard. Tolbert was surrounded by members of the old Americo-Liberian settler elite, and they were loath to give up any of their privileges. They proved very persuasive.
0: Ellen, as usual, was vocal about these problems. She gave speeches insisting on the need for less corruption, equal opportunity for the indigenous Liberians, and a better distribution of wealth and power.
1: Tolbert and the elites ignored her, per usual.
0: But this time, something was different. Ellen wasn't alone in her dissidence. Liberal groups, rooted in the sidelined and oppressed indigenous tribes, were springing up to protest Liberia's inequality and corruption.
1: One of the key issues these new radical groups latched onto was the price of rice. Tolbert and his family owned rice farms— and had proposed a price inflation that would allow Tolbert and other wealthy rice farmers to profit, while the country's poor majority were left hungrier than ever. But rice was really just a surface level issue stemming from generations of corruption.
0: On April 14th, 1979, a protest turned into a riot on Monrovia's streets. The government responded with repressive measures intended to quell the violence. But these measures only fed the flames. President Tolbert fired the finance minister and appointed Ellen to take his place, likely hoping that her record of speaking out against corruption might make the protesters happy.
1: This was a historic moment for Liberia. Ellen was the first woman to hold this position. For the first time, she really had the power to make change. She understood the frustrations of the Liberian people in the streets. In fact, she shared their hurt.
0: But her excitement at this opportunity was short-lived.
1: Tensions between radical, largely indigenous dissidents and the Tolbert government escalated rapidly over the next year. Ellen had barely settled into her new office before, on April 12, 1980, Master Sergeant Samuel Doe staged a coup d'etat.
0: During the coup, President Tolbert was shot in bed, disemboweled, and struck through the head with a bayonet. He was thrown into a mass grave with 27 other victims of the violence. Ten days later, 13 members of Tolbert's cabinet were publicly executed.
1: Only four ministers were spared. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was one of them.
0: Ellen likely made it through the turbulent, chaotic days after the coup because of her history of speaking out against the Tubman and Tolbert governments, despite the fact that she had worked for them. But she also knew that this protection might wear off at any time. Doe was killing people left and right. She had to get out of Liberia.
1: In December 1980, eight months after the coup, she fled the country.
0: She went to Washington, D.C. and took a position with the World Bank, which she got thanks to her contacts within the Liberian government. Later, she accepted a position in Nairobi, Kenya as vice president of Citicorp's Africa office.
1: All the while, Ellen was watching carefully as Doe, like Tubman and Tolbert before him, packed the government with his family and friends. Doe might not have been born into the Americo-Liberian elite, but he was replicating many of its corrupt practices. Ellen
0: seethed as Doe jailed dissidents. She had predicted this would happen. The economy floundered, staying afloat with loans from the U.S., which was determined to keep Liberia out of the Soviet bloc.
1: But then, in 1985... Thanks to increasing internal and international pressure, General Doe announced that Liberia would have a general election, and Ellen was still hopeful enough about the future of Liberia to get excited.
0: So much so that she dared to run against Doe as the vice presidential candidate of an opposing party. She knew the decision could be dangerous.
1: But she had to try.
0: Coming up, Ellen faces the dire consequences of returning to Liberia. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story.
1: In 1985, the military usurper General Samuel Doe announced that he was going to allow Liberia a general election, facing pressure from internal dissidents and the international community. 47-year-old Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elated at what she saw as, finally, her opportunity to help Liberia make real change. She left her
0: post at Citibank in Kenya, returned to Liberia, and ran for vice president.
1: But it quickly became clear that Doe had no intention of letting opposition parties run campaigns. And after Ellen gave a speech calling the current administration idiots, he had her arrested on charges of sedition.
0: A military tribunal sentenced her to 10 years in jail.
1: Ellen, a national folk hero for her determination to speak truth to power, was dragged off to prison.
0: The international community erupted in outrage. Citibank, Ellen's former employer, went to bat for her. The US Congress passed a non-binding resolution calling on the American government to block all foreign assistance to Liberia if Doe failed to release his political prisoners.
1: Many Liberian women even signed a petition for Doe to comply.
0: Doe capitulated. In September 1985, two weeks into her 10-year sentence, Ellen was released.
1: For Ellen, the experience was powerful. Powerfully terrifying, but also a powerful reminder that collective action and pressure could create change.
0: She'd hold that knowledge close during the difficult years to come.
1: That difficulty began when her party dumped her from its vice presidential ticket, thanks to pressure from Doe. However, another
0: party decided to nominate her for their seat in the Senate. On October 29th, the head of the Special Elections Commission, Emmett Harmon, announced the results. General Samuel Doe had scratched out a victory. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf won her seat in the Senate. And yet, she was fuming.
1: The presidential election, she was sure, had been rigged. Doe had won by about 51% of the vote, just enough to avoid a runoff. But there were stories of children voting, of double voting, of voter suppression.
0: Well, this was no fair election she couldn't accept her seat. To do so would give credence to the results of the presidential election, and that she could not do.
1: Declining her seat infuriated Doe, but Ellen wasn't the only one who was intent on making her disgust with the rigged election clear.
0: On November 12 1985, the ex-commander general of Doe's army staged a coup. Ellen was arrested along with other dissidents when the coup failed, even though she'd played no part in the debacle.
1: For the second time in less than six months, Ellen was imprisoned.
0: Prison in 1985, Liberia, was a deadly place, especially for a woman. Ellen would later write in her memoir that she narrowly escaped sexual assault by her guards.
1: She was constantly afraid and anxious, At any minute, she knew her cell door could swing open to reveal an executioner. But, as the months wore on with her life intact, Hope started to creep in. She wondered if her international contacts and the pressure they exerted on Doe stilled his hand.
0: Whatever Doe's reasons, Ellen's hope was warranted. In July 1986, after eight months in prison, she was released.
1: In the weeks that followed, however, Ellen was unsurprised to see that she was being followed. Liberia was still wholly unstable. The people were mobilized, and no amount of arrests or executions by Doe was going to change that. But that didn't stop him from trying.
0: Ultimately, Ellen knew she needed to leave Liberia. But Doe's government still had her passport, and he ordered all political prisoners to stay in the country
1: she'd need to escape in secret.
0: Her son's wedding day provided the perfect diversion.
1: Her watchers, she hoped, would relax their gaze on that day, assuming she'd be busy with wedding preparations.
0: Around 3 a.m., the day of the celebration, she woke up and dressed in jeans in a bulky jacket. She pulled a cap over her forehead and wore glasses to hide her face.
1: She was cool under pressure, focused, and efficient.
0: An hour later, she slipped out her front door, hopped into a waiting car, and drove 90 miles out of Monrovia to a small private airport.
1: Heart racing, she scrambled into a small plane that a friend had arranged for her.
0: By dawn, she was on her way out of the country. It was only when she saw the west coast of Africa receding behind her that she breathed a sigh of relief. But the success of her escape was bittersweet. She had no idea when she'd be back, and no idea what would hit Liberia in the interim.
1: What followed for Ellen were 11 years of exile. She first worked as vice president of HSBC Equator Bank in Washington, then joined the U.N. Development Program as the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations.
0: Meanwhile, a civil war erupted in Liberia. In 1989, an armed uprising against the Doe regime quickly devolved into a chaotic, factional bloodbath. In 1990, Doe was tortured in the streets of Monrovia and murdered by one of the rebel leaders, Prince Johnson. The whole agonizing affair was captured on video and broadcast around the world.
1: Ellen watched the tragedy unfold from afar, heartbroken. Doe was her enemy and an enemy of the Liberian people, but no one deserved to die like that. And it wasn't just Doe who died. Liberians across the country were losing family, friends, and loved ones in the conflict.
0: By 1990, Ellen was 52. She could have easily seen this chaos, given up on Liberia, and chosen to embrace her status as an expat.
1: Her homeland, for all her dedication, had not treated her well.
0: But most of her family was still in Liberia, and Liberia, for all its bloody wounds, was her home. As she explained in her memoir, I was always, always, always looking for the opportunity to return.
1: That opportunity came in 1996, when a ceasefire was finally reached and general elections were announced to take place the following year. -year 58-year-old Ellen, after 11 years of exile, returned to her homeland. And this time, she campaigned for president
0: but she was soundly defeated.
1: Ellen's emphasis on change and reform may not have been so welcome in a country that wanted peace and stability.
0: Charles Taylor, one of the warlords who played a prominent role in the Civil War, seemed like a more secure option for a country ravaged by conflict, despite the brutal way in which he'd helped slay Doe, or perhaps because of it.
1: But the elections were also widely considered rigged, much like the election that gave Doe the presidency.
0: Ellen, however, was unwilling to stay quiet even in defeat. When Taylor proved to be just as brutally oppressive as Doe, she became his government's most outspoken critic. This time, she was also up against the international community, which had widely supported Taylor's presidency in hopes of ushering Liberia out of civil war and into peace.
1: Ellen's criticism of Taylor put her in grave danger. Dissidents were not tolerated, and she feared for her safety. Soon after Taylor's inauguration on August 2, 1997, Ellen fled Liberia for the fourth time.
0: This time, she settled in Côte d'Ivoire, Liberia's neighbor, and established a venture capital firm. But once again, she watched the situation in Liberia carefully and waited for her opportunity to return.
1: Her heart broke as, under the leadership of a second dictatorial warlord, Liberia descended once more into brutal civil war in 1999. The international community turned its back on the usurper it had previously supported.
0: Then, in 2003, as a result of intense international pressure and major territorial losses, the disgraced President Taylor fled to Nigeria.
1: Ellen knew it was finally her turn to lead. Her country needed her.
0: After close to 14 years of civil war, Liberians were ready for something new. They wanted rule of law. They wanted peace.
1: She returned home in 2003 to chair the Governance Reform Commission of the transitional government. She successfully oversaw a transition of the nation's finances from the executive branch to the legislative branch, allowing for more democratic oversight.
0: Well then, in 2005, Ellen's confidence proved founded. She was elected president of Liberia's brand-new government in what is widely considered the country's first real free election.
1: She owed her victory largely to the women of Liberia. And with the help of those women, she made history. President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was the first elected female head of state in African history.
0: On January 16th, 2006, she was sworn into office.
1: Liberia entered a new era of peace. For many Liberians, that was the greatest gift Ellen could possibly give them. Finally, the nation's children could grow up without fear of stray bullets cutting their lives short.
0: But Ellen's successes in her first term did not end at keeping the peace. She erased $5 billion of Liberia's foreign debts after three years in office. And by the end of her term in 2011, she had increased the government's yearly budget from $80 million to $516 million.
1: Her years working in international finance paid off. She knew how to negotiate a good deal and how to work with the global community.
0: Those skills helped her run an effective foreign policy overall. She negotiated the end of trade sanctions against Liberia. She started to move the country's reputation away from the instability of the civil wars.
1: But Ellen was also acutely aware of Liberia's need for social change.
0: She instituted free universal elementary education, and her government established one of the most comprehensive anti-rape laws in Africa, and a fast-track court for gender-based violence.
1: These successes made her the darling of the developing world in the eyes of many international figures and organizations, like Bill Clinton and George Soros's Open Society Foundation.
0: In 2011, at the end of her first term, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Committee credited Ellen's contribution to securing peace in Liberia, to promoting economic and social development, and to strengthening the position of women.
1: Many Liberians, too, were pleased with her work. Four days after the announcement of the Nobel Prize, she was elected to a second six-year term in office.
0: But despite winning a second term, Ellen's reputation at home was far from perfect.
1: As her second term wore on, many Liberians grew frustrated by Ellen's lack of a comprehensive feminist political agenda, especially after her first election on the backs of Liberia's women some were devastated when she went on record deriding feminism. She claimed it was extremism, although she continued to talk about the need for equality and female empowerment.
0: Critics also grew frustrated by her refusal to advance gay rights, while others were angry that they remained poor, despite Sirleaf's promise of turning Liberia into a middle-income country.
1: And finally, they were tired of her nepotism. She appointed nearly 20 family members to government posts during her tenure as president, after a career spent railing against corruption. This was perhaps the biggest betrayal of all.
0: Ellen's motivations for those appointments and the rationale she used to justify them are hard to understand. But what's clear is that many of her one-time allies grew frustrated with the hypocrisy.
1: Lema Bowie, a Liberian activist who shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Ellen, even resigned from her government post in 2012 to protest what she saw as the president's tolerance for graft.
0: It would be short-sighted to condemn President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's entire presidency or career because of that failure, however. And in 2017, She cemented her legacy by doing something no Liberian leader in recent memory had.
1: At the end of her second term in 2017, Ellen stepped down from her presidency without a fight, as the Constitution mandated.
0: This was Liberia's first peaceful democratic transition of power in 73 years.
1: And like the 12 years of peace she safeguarded for her country, it was a powerful gift for Liberian democracy.
0: While Ellen didn't run a faultless government, far from it in fact, by preserving democracy in Liberia, she opened up the field for better governments to follow and set an example, hopefully, for generations to come.
1: Today, her legacy remains as complicated as her tenure in office.
0: Her success serves as a model for ambitious women like herself. Her decision to be open about the domestic abuse she suffered during her marriage helped demonstrate that survivors need not be defined by their experiences.
1: And her story seems to have inspired other women to enter politics in Liberia. In 2017, the last year of her presidency, 16% of candidates for the House of Representatives were female, the highest proportion in history.
0: However, in 2019, UN data showed that women accounted for around 12% of Liberia's legislature.
1: In addition, Liberia still faces widespread corruption and poverty. The transparent, equitable democracy Ellen's presidency seemed to be auguring is still a ways off.
0: But despite it all, Ellen remains a remarkable, trailblazing figure.
1: More than a year after stepping down from office, she's still busy giving speeches and tweeting about the need for increased equality, democracy, and development across Africa and the world. She
0: believed in a country that seemed beyond hope. Her story is far from over, but her legacy is already one of peace, promise, and integrity. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode.
1: You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify.
0: Well, not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Historical Figures, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Until next time.
0: Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Anthony Valsik. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Nora Battelle and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.